Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. We have a jam-packed show for you, so let's get right to it. A little bit later on, singer-songwriter Hannah Georgis will join us. She has a new record in stores, online, wherever you legally buy or download music right now. It's called All That Emotion. Uh, it is tremendous stuff. It was produced by Aaron Desner of The National, and it's a beautiful record. Let's let's hear a little bit of it. Georgis a little bit later on in the show. First up though, I want to tell you about a documentary called Battle for the Planet of the Humans. Uh, in this documentary, my guest filmmaker Jeff Gibbs, who co-produced Michael Moore's films Fahrenheit 9-11 and Bowling for Columbine, and his producer, Ozzy Zayner, uh, examine climate change, fossil fuels, pollution, and the green energy movement. The synopsis calls Planet of the Humans a documentary that dares to say that we are losing the battle to stop climate change on planet Earth because we are following leaders who have taken us down the wrong road, selling out the green movement to wealthy interests in corporate America. The film is a wake-up call to the reality we are afraid to face, says Jeff Gibbs, that in the midst of a human-caused extinction event, the environmental movement's answer is to push for techno fixes and band-aids, it's too little, too late. It's not without controversy, and it was for a little while pulled off YouTube where it was screening for free. It's back now, you can find it there. It's closing in on a little over 10 million views right now. Let's talk about Battle for the Planet of the Humans with director Jeff Gibbs and producer Ozzy Zayner. Jeff, you've been an environmentalist for a long time. What can you tell me about your environmental philosophy? Oh, um, my that's a very good question. I haven't been asked that. Well, I think early in life, my uh, philosophy was to try to do the best I could do and, and try and figure out a bit different way to live. And now I'm very aware that sometimes we get confused about what's good for us versus what's good for the planet. So I think we have to get both of those right, um, you know, to make progress. And this film is part of that, is part of that ongoing project for you. Absolutely. You know, as you see early in the film, I, you know, tried to live in the woods and grow my own food and get all wired up for solar panels. But, um, you know, over time, I slowly became, you know, integrated into society like everyone else, you know, have to get a job and all that. But um, yeah, and I discovered that some of the things I'd always believed in weren't quite what they were cracked up to be. I always thought if we put up solar and wind and went renewable, that maybe we would kind of save the planet. But I realized, first, the problem is much bigger than just climate change alone. And second, Maybe the very idea that building more technology, more of anything, green or otherwise, is going to save us isn't quite right. And Ozzy, these ideas have been quite controversial. We've seen a lot of talk in the press about this and the film's approach to uh, this environmentalism. And we'll get into that uh, a little bit more deeply uh, in, a, in a couple of minutes. But tell me what your reaction to that is, what the, the controversy has been. Well, the controversy was a lot more than we thought it was going to be. Uh, you know, I, I knew that this would um, end up uh, shocking some people, uh, but I didn't expect uh, as much pushback as we got. It was uh, it was pretty impressive. The audience, however, audiences, however, really really enjoy the film. Uh, we've gotten like a, a ten to one thumbs up uh, on YouTube, uh, over ten million views. So uh, it's really hitting you know, with a lot of people, right. But it, I think it's upsetting 
the people who have a different story, the one that's funded, you know, more by industry and the, the, the wealthy foundations. And uh, we're interested in, in moving forward uh, past that now. And uh, so that's part of the Canadian tour. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the Canadian tour. We obviously can't all be in the same room together uh, unless you're shrouded in plexiglass or wrapped in saran wrap or something. So tell me a little bit about uh, the Canadian tour and what people can expect. Sure. Well, first of all, I want to just say that I, I'm, I've always thought Canada had an outsized role in, in a lot of these discussions. You know, Greenpeace. I work with the founder of um, Sea Shepherd Conservation Society on a film. Uh, Rob Stewart in Toronto with the Sharkwater film. Um, even even with the films I've worked on, Bowling for Columbine, um, Michael Donovan, you know, in uh, Halifax and Salter Street Films, and then uh, Alliance Atlantis, you know, after that, uh, there wouldn't have been a Bowling for Columbine without them. So um, I think we've always had a fondness for Canada. You know, hopefully you'll leave a light on and the door open if we need to get out of here. <laughs> but um, originally we had thought, well, let's do a train tour across Canada and just have discussions, wouldn't that be a great thing? But um, since we couldn't do that, the next best thing was to go community by community. And this is kind of a interesting experiment because we really want to focus, even though anybody can join, um, per community, we want to, to focus on the questions that come from that community and have, and have a virtual discussion. You can also expect some, some surprises, some clips we haven't shown anyone and some updates and uh, maybe a little bit of insights that we haven't revealed about the people who have come after us. You're listening to my interview with Battle for the Planet of the Humans director Jeff Gibbs and producer Ozzy Zayner. These are all taking place, there's a lot of them, uh, Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal, Hamilton, Vancouver, Victoria, Winnipeg, and Halifax spread out from October 19th to the 29th of October. They all take place at 6.30 p.m local time. Uh, you can get tickets at ticketmaster.ca and uh, you can buy them as of today. So um, the, the film, which is called, we should mention this, Planet of the Humans, uh, is available for free on YouTube. Movies are expensive to make. Movies cost money to make. Why give it away for free? It's a very good question. First of all, we encourage people to check the website because um, you know, we didn't intend to leave it free forever, so it's free for now. And there may, but its availability will be clear at planetofthehumans.com and we'll keep it low cost no matter what happens. But I guess the reason is that when I made this film, this might sound corny, but I decided that we really, the most important thing is not me, but raising this conversation. And, and between the pandemic and then people being laid off and not having a lot of disposable money, um, and the 50th anniversary of birthday, it just felt like the right thing to do. And to stay out of, you know, to stay away from, um, you know, it gets very complicated once you start monetizing things anyway. But uh, we really wanted to go into theaters, but we thought, no, this is the right thing to do at this time. And um, so here I am living in the Northwoods in a rental house. And, uh, you know, that's the way it goes when you're a documentary filmmaker. Ozzy, as the producer of the film, uh, when the pandemic began, what were your thoughts on in terms of how to release it and, and, and what it should be out in the world during the pandemic? Boy, you know, we one thought we had was, well, I think like a lot of people will wait this out and we'll just, we'll, we'll release it in the theaters, you know, in the fall after all of this is over, like we originally planned. Uh, but then we, we realized very quickly uh, that, that that was not going to be a possibility most likely. Um, 
And I was all behind uh, the idea of putting it on uh, YouTube once we, we thought about it for a little bit because uh, you know, all of us have been working on this project. It's a, a passion project for all of us. Uh, and we really just wanted people to see the film. And boy, did they see it. 10 million people. Uh, you know, Jeff, if it had played in theaters, I don't think you would have gotten an audience of 10 million people. I, it, films... It, 10 million people, that's a James Bond level kind of, or yeah. I don't know, Harry Potter level audience. So that must be gratifying. Yeah, it's very hard to say um, because the other films I worked on, Fahrenheit 9-11, you know, we set box office records. Bowling for Columbine set box office records. So it's hard to know. And remember, each of those viewers on YouTube could have been a couple people. So we may have had an audience of 15 to 20 million. Um, so yes, it's it's an unknown, unknown territory, but... Um, I just wanted to expand what you were saying earlier with the pandemic. Uh, the other thing that was true is that, that it kind of shocked us. It's like, you know, Mother Earth sent us to our timeout room for a little bit. So that, and also we had to slow down, which everybody says, oh, you know, you don't provide solutions in the movie. Well, what, what we're really saying is that when are we humans going to have an off switch? You know, this story of more and more and more continued growth is going to come to an end at some point. And when Mother Nature gives us a slap down, we don't like it. Um, so we, that was another reason was that it seemed like everybody was in a frame of mind, like what's going on and what's really happening. And I think we're losing sight of that now, but remember for a while, the skies were blue and, uh, at least where I live in Michigan, the humans were gone and the animals began to return. Listen, I, I did a web series during the beginning of the pandemic up until uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, no matter where I spoke to people, wherever they were in the world, and one of the things I wanted to do with it was show that no matter where you are, we are all connected. We're all doing the same things. We want safety for our family, food on our tables, all that kind of thing. And uh, everyone told me that they were seeing animals that they had never seen. Uh, one uh, actor friend of mine in Los Angeles you know, said that there's eagles in his backyard now. There are coyotes walking down his street. Uh, I heard similar stories from London and from all over the world. And it, it, it was remarkable because the pace of life changed, the world changed, and uh, the animals came back. We are all connected because, and even the, the sky's being blue here, you know, I have, I'm sensitive to air pollution, and I was looking around Canada, where could you escape the air pollution? And indeed, even in northern Michigan, where I'm at, and through much of Canada, even though it's not as bad as in a large city, the air pollution spreads across the entire northern hemisphere. But on the other hand, you ship our fossil fuels and much of the things we consume here, um, that the produce the pollution. So this is a story where we're all in together. I think the movie is a story that transcends liberal or conservative, too, because, you know, there, we really don't call out the fossil fuel industry directly, but the background is, you know, we're hitting limits with climate change, but maybe some of the choices we made on the left um, have, have been the wrong road to go down. The film does explain that we have limits. Um, uh, Ozzy, what do you think those limits are? And do you think that in some way the pandemic, I mean, Jeff just touched on this, has made us think about what those limits are? The risk that I see with limits is that we could get stuck in a position where we're having to reduce our consumption uh, without control. And the pandemic was a slight, uh, you know, taste of that. And for a lot of people, it's very difficult. They don't have jobs. They don't have the ability to um, 
to know when they're going to be going back to work and supporting families. That's a real problem uh, around the world. And we, this is just a minor uh, version of what could come uh, with, the, with an eventual um, breakdown in a lot of systems that we're seeing across the board. And that's the, the first part of the movie where we cover that. Uh, so that's my fear is that, that we're going to run into something like the, the pandemic that we are in now, but we're, we're going to have much less control over it. It's going to be much worse. And so uh, the film is a, kind of a call to think about that, to start the conversation about what we can do to avoid that. Uh, and that was, that was our big push behind doing that story. Hey, Jeff, I think some of the controversy came from, and we touched on this earlier, uh, how the film critically evaluates uh, the motivations of a number of leading environmentalists, uh, some environmentalist groups. Um, and the film uh, essentially asks, you know, are they taking us down the right path? Uh, how do you respond to that? I think many well-intended people of my generation um, and, and, and even younger generations decided that the best way to move forward was to collaborate with corporations, bankers, you know, the people who basically run the planet. And and that's a tempting um, thing to do, but I believe what happens is over time that you get changed. They don't change. They use your involvement, whether it's a Sierra Club um, or an environment, you're an environmental leader. They use you as cover to keep doing what what they've been doing. And so this, what I discovered was the story of green technology is just another thirty to fifty dollar, thirty to fifty trillion dollar profit center um, for uh, hedge funds, bankers, industrialists, and, and the very rich. So I, I think the criticism comes from, you know, once you start going down a path, it's hard to get out of it. And I think actually many of our critics know that that's the wrong path, but they can't get out of it. They're trapped in that story. Um, and and it's, it's a difficult thing because many of the, many filmmakers, many institutions, many media get funding from the same, you know, people in the same foundations. Um, that's the first thing you do when you're a filmmaker, you know, apply to the Rockefeller Fund, apply to, you know, this institute and that institute who are all funded by. So we're kind of challenging something really big here. But the question is, you know, will getting into bed with people who have the profit motive actually wind up saving the planet? Um, I don't think so. You're listening to my interview with Battle for the Planet of the Humans director Jeff Gibbs and producer Ozzy Zayner. Ozzy, the, the film, I think, could be described as bleak uh, in the, some of the, the ideas that it presents. Um, do you think that this idea that uh, it's darkest before the dawn, things are bleak now, but there there is a shift coming, uh, do you think that holds true? I don't see the film as bleak. And I think when people uh, have time to digest it, and, and we've even heard this from people who have watched it a second and a third time, uh, they people that came to um, one of our early screenings and then bought tickets to come back again and then bought tickets to come back again, uh, and what we found is that there's, there's this, this, it's a difficult time to, to reckon with what we've done and where we found ourselves. But once we have the clarity and, and, and a different way of viewing the, where we are, uh, you know, I think that's where hope comes from is, is seeing things differently uh, so that we can actually uh, think more clearly about where we're moving forward. And Jeff, the film ends with uh, deforestation of the rainforest, uh, but it also ends with a quote from Rachel Carson, who says that essentially, and I'm paraphrasing, humankind is being challenged to master itself. 
Um, what exactly do you think that means? Is it just a, a question of taking back a lot of the things that we have come to accept as needs? We need this, so we have to have potentially destructive uh, forces in the world to give us that? Uh, what, what exactly does it mean to you? Sure. I guess um, one way of looking at it is that um, maybe we're an adolescent species right now and we're in trouble. Maybe, you know, adolescents tend to want what they want and they have their feelings and they want to go for it. And maybe they do good from time to time. But, you know, and the task of adolescence to adulthood is one of self-restraint and one of existing in community. And I think even though we have those threads in the environmental movement, uh, we really haven't invented a sustainable civilization that, that has figured out how to really live within boundaries. I think a lot of indigenous peoples have. There are tribal people that have. Um, um, perhaps there are cultures that have. And that's the question we wanted to raise. When are we going to learn to, um, in a sense, master ourselves while taking care of everyone? Because many people are hurting and don't have enough right now. But when is enough enough? And when we, do we learn who we really are? And so... We like to say, I like to say that we've triggered a set of questions. We don't have the answers. We hope to do perhaps more films or, you know, writing or whatever we're going to do. But just trigger a discussion. If technology is going to save us, what does a real plan to be humans integrated into a sustainable planet look like? Planet of the Humans is the most important documentary of our time. Join the filmmakers for a live event as they discuss how the environmental movement has gone astray. Nothing less than our future is at stake. We begin this segment with me asking Ozzy what the movie means when it talks about the suicide of economic growth. You know, the, uh, every year, uh, on average, our energy consumption globally goes up. And just that incremental increase every year is larger than the output of all of the solar cells combined, which took 30 years to build. And so in rich nations, we're attempting to chase our runaway consumption. And, and it won't work because we're trying to address the wrong problem. Um, and that's why we need a shift of coming back to rediscover our, our movement's principles. Uh, and that's really where the hope is. And I will... Uh, leave you uh, by asking you both the same question. I'll see if you have uh, a different answer or maybe you're, you're sort of more in lockstep about this, but what's the takeaway that you want people to have after they find this on YouTube or they take part in one of the uh, online uh, discussions that you're having, which are happening from October 19th through the 29th. Uh, you can get tickets for that at ticketmaster.ca. Uh, look for a battle of, for the planet of the humans and you'll be able to find that. Um, and keep in mind that all of those talks start at 6.30 p.m. local time. So what is the, the, the takeaway from all of that for you? I'll start with you, Jeff. Um, probably the biggest takeaway for me is that we're not just in the time of climate change, we're in the time of humans hitting multiple limits all across the planet. And we're not in the time where technology is gonna bail us out, we're in the time where we have to figure out um, what a sustainable human presence looks like. And I think it's a smaller presence that we have while taking care of everyone. And that's the question before us, how are we going to do that? I'm from Flint, Michigan, and we had a, a collapse there that wasn't planned. Um, you know, we need to plan for the coming events through climate change, through biodiversity collapse and resource depletion, uh, and not let them just, just smack us in the face. You're listening to my interview with Battle for the Planet of the Humans director, Jeff Gibbs, and producer, Ozzy Zayner. I don't think I could say it better than that. I, I agree with Jeff on this one, and 
I'm looking forward to the Canadian tour because I think it will be uh, exciting conversations with people. We're going to have we're going to answer questions and uh, from each city that we go to, and we have a little bit of uh, uh, we have, we chose these these cities for a reason, and uh, we have extra material and I, things to talk about that are, are very local, and uh, we're excited to to hear from from people in Canada and uh, looking forward to the tour very much. Uh, one last thing, uh, Battle for the Planet of the Humans, I think is a great nod to one of my favorite movie franchises of all time. <laughs> great. great. <laughs> I agree. And if I could add one more thing, I think uh, Canada has a very unique position uh, because you're very close to, the, um, to this great, you know, in a sense, empire that we are in the United States. But you're close, but far enough away to have a bit of perspective on what's happening. So we, we like to learn from you and, and with you. That was my interview with Jeff Gibbs, the director, and Ozzy Zayner, the producer of Battle for the Planet of the Humans. If you'd like to continue this conversation, check out these virtual live events that they're promoting right now. From Monday, October 19th, to Thursday, October 29th, they will be doing a series of online events connecting with Canadian communities from Toronto to Ottawa, Montreal, Hamilton, Vancouver, Victoria, Winnipeg, and Halifax. You can get tickets at ticketmaster.ca and all shows start at 6.30 p.m. local time. Now, let's hear a little bit from Hannah Georgis. Play it till I kill it, just to get it in my head. I want to know the secret, where you've been hiding. That was a little taste of all that emotion. The title track from Hannah Georgis's gorgeous, new, lush, and lovely album of the same name. Hannah joined me via Zoom to talk about the album and one of the greatest shows she has ever seen. In this time of pandemic, there is so little live music. Uh, so I've been asking people if they have strong musical memories to share, but I think that I already know your answer. So I've been reading about you a little bit, and you tell me that the best show that you've ever seen was the Cranberries at mm. Massey Hall in 1999. Why was that the best concert ever for you? Um, because I was in my teens at the time, and I was um, just, I was playing in a band, you know, making music and feeling just so passionate about writing songs, but also feeling like, I don't know, kind of confused about whether I should keep following that. And I was being pushed to like go to university and just choose kind of anything else other than music to pursue. And so when I, I had just been listening to the Cranberries forever throughout that whole process and um, was a huge fan of Dolores. And so when I saw her live in concert, I, it just blew my mind and just inspired me so much. So it's one of those shows that will ever, that will forever kind of be 
engraved in my brain as something that just was a pivotal moment for me um, and feeling empowered. It's interesting because you never know where inspiration is going to come from and what form it will take. You probably went to that show excited. It's great to go see a live show, but that it would inform the next number of years of your life was probably unexpected. Yeah, it was in a way and in a way like something, yeah, something that I just really needed and her along with like a bunch of other female singer songwriters were, gave me that kind of encouragement to, to kind of keep going. So um, yeah, it's, it's special. Do you have a live music memory uh, with you standing on the stage that was particularly significant for you? Mm. Yeah, I think many. It, one actually just happened last weekend where oh, yeah? I, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I hadn't, I wasn't on stage, I was in a rehearsal space, but um, I hadn't played with my band since February and uh, we just got together and when we just started practicing, I almost kind of burst into tears because it just felt so like, oh geez, now I really know, I just really miss this. And I really truly genuinely love performing and playing and singing and writing songs. So it was kind of a nice um, reminder in a way, because sometimes you for, you forget a bit because you're working, I, you're, you're doing all kinds of things other than just performing in the background. But um, yeah, that was a, a moment for sure. I had a, a moment, I don't play music, but I love going to see live music. And I live uh, downtown in Toronto. So I went and had a little walk. I've been inside for months. It feels like I haven't been outside for six months. <laughs> and I went for a walk and uh, around the corner, I could hear someone playing a guitar and singing. Mm. And frankly, they weren't very good, but it kind of <laughs> didn't matter to me. And I went around the corner and there was someone playing and they had a hat out for tips and things. And I welled up because I, mm. it, it was the first connection to live music that I had had in, in months. And mm. it felt like a little bit of normal. It was out of tune, yeah. but it felt like a little bit of normal. <laughs> and that meant a lot to me. I think, it, I, I think the absence of live music in people's lives uh, is, is something that, you know, we're, I think recognizing now because of the pandemic that it's one of those things that people really miss. Totally. I agree. I couldn't agree with you more. It's, mm -hmm. it's major. It's a big thing. This album is called all that emotion and it's out now. And you have said, I've been thinking about this album or what this album represents to me and it's resilience. It's about finding hope and a way out the other side of tough situations. The hardships we go through make us grow into stronger people. Now, these songs were written before the pandemic, but I don't know that you could have had a more timely kind of topic on the top of your head uh, than that for right now. It's just kind of a product of what I was going through um, in 2017. And um, it's nice that like to hear you say that because I think um, I just want these songs to, to bring comfort to people and to resonate with people. And, um, the whole reason, a big reason why I write music in the first place is because it's a very therapeutic process and it makes me feel better. And it makes me, um, 
just able to communicate how I'm feeling when sometimes I feel like I can't communicate it through words. I feel like sometimes I'm not, um, or just through like talking, I'm not good at it sometimes. So, um, yeah. Uh, are there songwriters that you look to? Mm, yes. A lot of songwriters. Um, I, I, well, I love, Annie Lennox and um, who else do I love? Sade. Um, I, there's all these, yeah, just female artists that really kind of struck a chord with me when I was growing up and, and look up to a lot. Um, who else can I say? I love Tina Turner. <laughs> um, yeah. Have you had a hard time uh, during the pandemic writing? Uh, I, I've talked to uh, various people about this, and some have said, absolutely not. I am just a font. I'm a fountain of, of songs. <laughs> but other people have told me that uh, they are feeling so anxious that they've not been really able to write anything. Uh, how are you feeling about this? Mm, I've kind of been on both sides mm. of the spectrum. I've felt some days are just easier than others. And um, I have been like focusing a lot of my attention on this release. Um, but there's been some good moments in there too, where I've been creative. And um, I actually just moved out of the city recently um, into a place that's like very quiet. And um, I was just craving that. And I have now like a nice music space where I have my piano set up and I feel like I can play without anybody really listening to me in my, in my place in the city. I, I enjoyed it, but I also felt like I was um, kind of restricted on my, my setup and uh, um, just feeling like people might be annoyed <laughs> that I'm playing <laughs> or, or listening to me in a way that I don't want them to listen yeah. to me. So, so, um, yeah, I guess to answer your questions, yes and no. <laughs> Did working in upstate New York with uh, Aaron Desner uh, at his studio up there, the national studio up there, did that uh, give you a love for country living or uh, totally. isolated living? Yeah. Um, his, sorry, Aaron's place in upstate New York is just a dream. And it's been something like, um, that I've really inspired to have at some point in my life. And so this, this kind of, yeah, that, that helped my cause for sure. Yeah, this is <laughs> and, a step in that direction. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's just nice. I feel like it's good for my brain when I'm kind of have the ability to like have be close to uh, lakes or be close to um, getting out for good walks um, and being around nature. That's like one big thing that I've realized over time that is something that I just kind of really crave. Gordon Lightfoot says that writing songs is 10% inspiration and 90% perspiration. <laughs> Does that ring a bell for you? Yeah. Um, I don't know if in the same way, that he's he's thinking but immediately it's it, it made me think that it's just like a lot of work and it, and when you're when you're doing it as a um um 
as a life or as a career, there's just like, there's a whole process and long time that takes to, to, to get music out and to um, trust in yourself and um, to just kind of keep, keep the wheels turning and, um, and everything in motion. I don't know. It's a, it's a lot of work. It's not just, it's not just the songs. It's, a whole bunch of other things that go on with it. You're listening to my interview with singer-songwriter Hannah Georgis. This album uh, was produced by Aaron Dessner of The National. How did you come to work with him at Long Point Pond Studios? I mean, Taylor Swift is recorded there, and the National recorded. This is, this is a, um, a really well-known uh, situation. How did you come to work with him? Well, um, I... I'm a big fan of his. And so back in 2015, I just reached out to him and um, I started a, an email dialogue with him. And uh, he just asked me to share some music with them. And, and so I started just sharing demos with him up until um, the end of up until 2018 basically and then in 2017 we managed to um, find time in his schedule to uh, for me to come out and work on music with him in his studio in upstate New York so yeah and, and I love the story about how you drove there so you were living in Toronto at the time and you drive to upstate New York uh, it's your first time making an album outside of Canada. Mm. Um, it's got to be a eight, nine hour drive, something like that uh, to get there. Did it change the vibe? I mean, knowing that you were going there and you've got this, this buildup, this eight or nine hour drive ahead of you to think and marinate it in it a little bit. Did it, did it change things for you at all? Mm -hmm. It really helped me. It helped me kind of just really center myself and, um, get yeah just to really get I got really excited on the drive and you know half the drive I'd like just sit in silence thinking <laughs> about things and then um you know I would listen to music and uh just I didn't really stop the whole way I just kept <laughs> driving but it felt you know there's just so it's, it is a really gorgeous drive and there's so many beautiful towns that you drive through and I just reflected a lot and thought about like my intention with this record and with him and trying and you know just really setting myself up to to be positive and to be as creative as possible when I get there and when I got there and so yeah those drives were really were really helpful. I think I'm sensing a theme here you know this solitude and quiet time you're living in the country now the drives provided that that seems to feed your creativity. Mm-hmm it calms my brain down i think yeah. Yeah, you <laughs> yeah. don't need to thrive off chaos to be creative I guess. <laughs> um i do thrive off that in a way but when it comes to like just me um sitting down and and working on it i think that really helps my head a lot mm. Uh, you toured with the national as well. Um, how alike or how different is it to tour with uh, an act like the national compared with your own tours? Um, well, there's, there's lots of like 
similarities in the sense that you're hanging out with your crew and your team and you're traveling from one city to the next and you're playing shows and um there's that and there's like a camaraderie there and then with them it's just on a much bigger scale and um it's massive shows and it I, you know, I was singing in their band, so I was playing a different role, which I really, really enjoyed and loved because it's nice not to be the one like trying to just um, being the front person of a band. It's like nice to take step back and like just come along for the ride and do your job and and uh, do the best that you can do to support the act and I just loved it so much I loved and I love them like there's so I'm I've been a, a longtime fan and and so when you work with a band that you really like are a fan from afar and then real and get to know them and know that they're all really lovely people it just makes it that much better and that much yeah more of a great time so um it was such an awesome experience to go to go do that with them that was my interview with singer songwriter hannah georgis her new album all that emotion is getting rave reviews the guardian calls it moving and compelling and it says that Georgis won't get a fraction of the attention enjoyed by her producer's previous client, and if you don't know, that was Taylor Swift, but she deserves at least some of the same kudos. That's high praise indeed for an album that is lush and lovely and comes with my highest recommendation. Hannah Georgis, look for her music wherever you legally buy or download music. So my thanks to my guests for stopping by and spending some time with me, but as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Take care of yourself, and we'll talk again soon.